Today's episode of On to Waveland is brought to you by Remarkably Remote, a new daily microcast from GoToMeeting, all about making work from home work for you. With indispensable intel on how to stay sane, motivated, and productive at home, we're here to help you in this brave new remote working world. Add to your flash briefing on Alexa or subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. Hey folks, welcome to On to Waveland. It is the Chicago Cubs podcast here at The Athletic. I am Brett Taylor, joined today by Sahadev Sharma, and far more interestingly, joined by Keith Law of The Athletic. You know him as a uh, baseball writer. He is covers the minor leagues, covers prospects, he plays guitar, he writes about board games. He does a lot of stuff that are, uh, you know, deeply interesting, I find. And he's also an incredible Twitter follow, uh, especially if you recognize that he hates your favorite team. So I uh, want to say thanks and welcome, Keith. Uh, really appreciate you taking the time to be with us. Sure thing. Good to be here. So uh, I think, you know, obligatory at the top of, you know, we're doing a baseball podcast, obviously, and it's a time of course where there is not baseball but more broadly speaking i think that both for from the listener perspective and just for our perspective is like dudes having a conversation at a time like this i think it's fair to ask you know like how are you doing how you know how are things going for you in this um modified existence that we're in and how are you getting along i am doing pretty well actually i'm kind of privileged in that like um you know, I've got a full house. Um, we're all healthy. We're kind of busy. My girlfriend's working a lot more actually at this point than I am. Her job has gone fully remote. Uh, there's only so much I can do at this point, obviously, because we have no games to watch. So I'm writing some, but it's not the same. It's trying to help uh, with homeschooling more for her kids. My daughter is old enough to handle it herself. I have family out there who are at somewhat higher risk, but everybody's fine. So I really can't complain we're we're in pretty good shape i know people i know people directly who are in worse shape i have a cousin who's caught it uh as a mild case so far but you always worry high school friend very close friend of mine caught a mild case i have a cousin in italy who's a doctor in a hospital that is now designated as a COVID 19 hospital so of course you know i just worry about her all the time because it's almost inevitable she's gonna catch it yeah oh my i mean it's obviously it's something that (sighs) none of us are going to escape at least some impact by extension. And um, I think you've, it sounds like you've got the right attitude in terms of, um, you know, recognizing where we, and I think it applies to all of us, you know, very privileged to be able to right now, at least be functioning in some way that um, we can still feel positive about what we're doing and, you know, reasonably, um, okay with the folks around us. I know that's true for at least uh, Sahadev's and my family right now. And so uh, that's, it's, it's worth, yeah, worth taking stock of that. So uh, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to do a really obnoxious thing coming right out of like that serious <laughs> intro, throw it. You know what I'm going to do? Sahadev. I'm like, I'm going to throw it to Sahadev and be like, Hey man, you want to transition this baby into some baseball talk? <laughs> oh, let's do it. Uh, 
Keith, obviously, I mean, when oh, we talk God, about so prospect, you're you're so insensitive. <laughs> I'm sorry for being sorry. thoughtless. Uh, obviously, when we talk about prospects, I mean, you know, five years ago, we're talking about one of the greatest systems we've seen in baseball, arguably, and now uh, the Cubs are really struggling to to really make a name for themselves as far as minor league systems go. Uh, I, I what I I'm going to start off right away with this with this question and and I look at teams that have turned it around quickly at least when I look at uh, team rankings and I see Seattle and I see Arizona pop out to me that's just off the top of my head uh, and I when I think about it those are two very different turnarounds one was really player development based from what I gather and the other uh, really honing in on the draft uh, with Arizona. Uh, what do you see as far as the Cubs' best bet as far as turning this around, going from a bottom 10 system to a or maybe, you know, a top 10 system? And how long does that process take? Am I missing am I missing the years of work that went into turning around Arizona and San Diego? Uh, and and it, it almost looks like an instantaneous turnaround when I am probably missing so many details of, of what really happened there. Well, San Diego turned around because they uh, you know, after one year of attempted contention failed contention uh, AJ Preller traded away a slew of prospect a slew of major leaguers um, and then they had some high draft picks which they've done exceptionally well on they actually done exceptionally well even on some uh, later round picks and then in under the old system in the international market they spent an absurd amount of money I think it was 2016. Um, where they just said, look, we're going to go into the penalty and this system is probably going to end soon. And so they went bananas and just signed as many guys, but high ticket, high dollar guys as possible. Some of whom have turned out to be legitimate prospects and have, you know, continued to do so really up until the last year. Or so they were still adding prospects. Now they're at the point where they're starting to trade some prospects away because they're trying to compete at the major league level. That path is just not open to the Cubs. One, they, you can't do that on the international market anymore. It's over. You can't do a Gliber Torres, Elo Jimenez class either. You just That's just no longer possible. And they're not losing yet. You, you know, the way that the Padres got there in part is because they've picked in the top 10 as high as number three overall multiple times in the last few years. Cubs aren't there yet. Um, Arizona has been a very different story. Uh, I think it's been... they. Ha I do think they've drafted well since the regime change. I think that they have developed exceptionally well, that there was some latent talent in the system that got better once Mike Hazen and his group took over. That might be a little bit better of a model. They've still picked higher than the Cubs have, um, although I think the highest they've picked since Hazen took over was the Paven Smith pick, which has not worked out. They've done better later in the round, actually. And I would point to something specific about Arizona if I were going to advise. The Cubs did not ask for my advice, but I will offer some. You know, you look at Arizona, their, their draft philosophy has just clearly been very different than the Cubs. It's funny because there's so much shared DNA between the two organizations, and yet the Diamondbacks are doing, they're just doing a way better job, uh, particularly with high draft picks. The Cubs have not been very successful with high draft picks post, I don't know, Javi Baez. Maybe I missed one after that. Um, you know, Schwarber was sort of a big swing, and I don't think it's really panned out so far. I like Dan Happ, on the other hand. He really hasn't panned out so far. Albert Almora was a kid different than their typical picks. They really believed in his makeup. Um, 
and he certainly hasn't panned out. His approach at the plate has just not gotten better now in several years. Uh, at the point, you know, there's enough years of non-development that I start to think, well, maybe it's just never going to happen. Um, I, you know, I would point to, to Arizona's success in the draft and say, you need to figure out what they're doing. You look at other clubs, obviously, but you, you brought two up. What Arizona's done is going to be easier for the Cubs to try to replicate than what the Padres have done or what I think you mentioned the Mariners in passing there, what the Mariners have done because they were just trading. At that point, they finally said, all right, that's it. We're just trading everybody um, or almost everybody. Cubs aren't going to do that either. So if the Cubs are looking for a model of how to get back to at least having a strong farm system that can renew their contention, it would probably be more on the Arizona side. And it's worth pointing out, Arizona has continued to contend or at least be respectable even as they've been cycling the farm system. Well, it's interesting that you say that, Keith, because, you know, we think about the pretty foundational organizational overhaul on the player development side for the Cubs over the last 12 months. And, uh, you know, you certainly, I appreciate that they have recognized and acknowledged that in the post-rebuild era, um, they fell behind, you know, on the player development side, they have not been a, a preeminent organization, not just in terms of results, but when you kind of dug in under the hood, I think maybe it was, they were not, they were not at the forefront of the way, both from a technological standpoint and from a knowledge standpoint, the way you uh, develop prospects in the current era. And, I think that it's a very good point that um, because they, you know, they're not going to be in a position to proceed in a Mariners or Padres kind of way anytime soon, that it's kind of going to have to be the way you look at how the Diamondbacks have done. And, you know, what I wonder is how much can you really, you know, if you don't have the talent already in the pipeline and maybe the Cubs do, but how much can, you know, going from, Let's let's just imagine for the sake of the question that, they, you know, this was a bottom tier organization in terms of development practices. And let's say they have just killed it with their transitions over the past 12 months, really significant volume of hires, different approaches, reorganizations within the uh, who the leadership is. You know, how much can that really move the needle, both in near term development of individual prospects and, you know, maybe in a more medium term, two, three, four year window where even if the talent base doesn't necessarily change dramatically, you're just getting so much more out of them? That's an interesting question. It just as, as I think about its implications, are the Cubs at a point now where an overhaul in player development is, um, is sort of too late for the Hap Schwarber, uh, Almora, who else do whoever else you want to add to that? Um, even Addison Russell, obviously we don't want to talk about him. I'd rather never, never talk about him again, but he would be just by cohort in that group, right? Those guys are probably too old now to expect any sort of quantum improvements. It's not impossible, but it's not really likely. And it's not player development either. That's the major league staff. And yet then I look at the system. I don't think their system is barren, but it's not good, right? I think everybody kind of acknowledges the system's pretty weak right now. Um, between a lot of trades and then they haven't, you know, and a lot of low draft picks and they haven't really supplemented or, or replaced even the guys who've, who've left or graduated. And there've just been some non-development. There's sort of a running gag among myself and a few scouts and a couple other prospect writers that, you know, who's the new 
uh, hot Latin American signed Cubs right-handed pitcher throwing really hard on the backfields at Sloan who were all going to be like, oh, maybe this is the next breakout guy. And then nothing ever happens. And you're lucky if you ever hear from him again. It was first, it was Oscar de la Cruz, who actually I think has a chance now as a reliever. Turns out they put him in the bullpen and he finally stayed healthy and pitched well. Okay. Maybe he's a prospect. That's not what he was supposed to be. Um, Jose Alberto, so can't hit the broad side of a barn now. Then it was Giovanni Cruz, who I'm certainly not giving up on, right? But he didn't have the breakout. He had a nice year, fine, but he didn't have a breakout year. They need one of these guys to actually do it. Maybe it's going to be Brylon Marquez. That's the closest they've come to have any of their Latin American pitching prospects turn into something. Brylon Marquez has got a shot. He may still be a reliever. I get some delivery questions. Third pitch is kind of inconsistent. But I know plenty of scouts who think, that guy's a starter, and then and probably a pretty good starter if, if he stays there. But it hasn't happened yet. And I don't know that, does this change in player development regimes mean, okay, the next guy like that, maybe now Giovanni Cruz turns into, the, turns into a guy, an all-capitals guy. Maybe. Um, they need to get more of those guys into the system, and then they need to do better with the ones that they have. The player development change may, you know, obviously addresses the second part of that, but I don't know that there are so many underperforming but talented prospects in the system to say that the player development regime change is going to yield short-term results. Uh, you talk about Braylon Marquez, and this is a this is a guy that, you know, a lot of people are going to be split on. He's got the nastiest stuff you can imagine coming from the left side, and, and whether he's a starter or a reliever is going to be the question until he proves himself. There are a few guys like that in the Cubs system, and this is this is pretty normal. But but there's a few guys that they drafted that were relievers in college, and and are now uh, and they're trying to convert into starters. I, I remember talking to you about about Andrew Kashner years ago. Uh, that trend, I don't know if it's a if it's a trend that really caught on, but I think we we've seen it a little bit more. Since Kashner, I think back then it was uh, really odd to see, and and now we're seeing it a little more often. And maybe that has to do with player development practices and and what people are picking up, and and they're changing the way they look at pitchers. But what what are your feelings on this trend, and and is it something that the Cubs may be able to you know find some success with, and and kind of get ahead of other teams that may not be looking at it this way? I think I thought the approach was interesting because it seemed to me like it might represent a little bit of a change in drafting philosophy when going after pitchers that they were, and that, frankly that they were looking for pitchers who had the, uh, some of the underlying components. And this, from my understanding from talking to Cubs people, that it was both from scouts who, who would come back and say, I think he has the delivery, the athleticism, the strength to potentially be a starter. Um, and the pitches, the pitches are the most important thing. But then they'd also have data. They'd have TrackMan or TrackMan-style data uh, to say, well, these pitches have uh, components. You hear, I hear that word a lot, referring to sort of secondary characteristics of pitches beyond maybe just velocity, uh, that, they're, that they had the components to potentially be starters. That's not the way the Cubs have drafted pitching for all, at all. I, I don't know if this is a true shift. Did they shift philosophy before they even shifted personnel? Then I don't know the answer to that. I'm always intrigued when I see a team start to do something in the draft that they simply hadn't done before. The Royals two years ago, the Royals had really not had a whole lot of success drafting. Um, they still haven't had success drafting position players, but in 20, the 2018 draft, um, 
they suddenly just crushed college pitching. It was as if, and I believe this is true, Dayton Moore looked down and said, there is no pitching in this system. What the hell? And they just, I think it was five college pitchers with their first five picks, all in the top 50 or so overall, and then took a few more college pitchers. They went on down, and already a couple of those guys have popped to become pretty significant prospects. That's incredibly interesting, even when it just happens for one draft. Okay, you've, you've clearly you had some kind of internal discussion and said, we're doing it wrong, we're going to try something else. I think the Cubs did that a little bit last year. I think Ryan Jensen is an example of that. The majority of people I talked to thought Ryan Jensen would end up a reliever, uh, mostly because he's not that big. I think that's a, some pretty specious logic. Like Marcus Stroman says hi. It's Sonny Gray. He's been okay. There's plenty of these guys who are sub-six-foot right-handers. If you throw hard and you got good stuff, like a good arsenal of stuff, you can be a starter. Um, just the fact that the Cubs did that. Obviously, the way you know this is not Alex Lang and Brent, Brendan Little all over again. They took a different type of player, and they seemed to think they'd found something, and they took him a few times. Took that type of player a few times. A general profile that says to me that they may be shifting, uh, shifting philosophies. Maybe they just did it once. They won't necessarily do it again, but they believe that was the best way to attack last year's draft. Yeah, I think that um, they would say, and they they have sort of articulated this again over the last twelve months or so that that was somewhat of a philosophical change in the draft where they had previously really liked to focus on a, a pretty narrow mold of potential future starting pitcher uh, that checks a lot of very specific rigid boxes, not so much looking, like you said, at certain components that um, you might find in a college reliever um, that you think you can build out uh, kind of in a reverse way into a starter. And then, and then they've, the, the change to the personnel, like you mentioned, it's interesting, that actually came second. So it will be um, particularly interesting, and this is, serves as a useful transition to this year's draft. So, I mean, part of that personnel change, you know, we didn't see until this offseason where the Cubs uh, brought in um, Dan Kantrovitz uh, to essentially head up their draft operations. And so even if that philosophical change had in the draft had started to take root a year or two ago, um, they were probably going to see significant changes again this year. Uh, and that was before uh, everything that is uh, typical about the draft completely changed. And so, you know, I, I think we have to talk about, um, I mean, I think most people listening are of course aware that as part of the interim deal uh, to proceed this year, in you know whatever way is going to be necessary whether there are games or not but part of that deal between the league and the players involved the ability for the league to shift the draft back to as far as into july and also to shrink the rounds to as few as five and obviously the 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 shifting and the time of it is to for a variety of reasons but includes the very very slim possibility that you'd be able to get amateurs out there in some fashion, maybe not organized games, but maybe in some kind of circuit. Um, and also the reduction in the rounds of the draft. There are financial reasons for that that are that still feel really dubious to me, but um, that is part of the stated reason. And, you know, what I'm curious, your thoughts, Keith, is how, not just how are teams going to operate in the draft in this environment where you can't your your scouting protocols are just going to be monumentally different. But have you given thought to the ways in which teams can be 
nimble in this environment and you know, I don't want to say take advantage of because that just is like the most crass phrasing in a situation like this, but to maybe not be as negatively impacted by the changes this year and, and just be able to kind of do their normal thing, even if it's only for five rounds and even if it's without the benefit of a lot of eyes on scouting. I, and one thing I just want to add on the last thing we were talking about too, I think there's a recognition that college coaches are not necessarily the best judges or developers or pitchers. There are some exceptions, but there are a lot of college teams that take their best pitchers and stick them in relief because they're kind of incompetent. Um, you know, where you get a guy like that, like down in Florida, university of Florida, where O'Sullivan often just has more starting pitching candidates than he has spots in his rotation. So we've seen plenty of guys come out. Anthony Disclafani was a reliever at Florida. If you'd ever asked Sully, the coach there, he would have said, I think Anthony can start. I just don't have a spot for him. Um, or Dane Dunning, the White Sox prospect now, was kind of in the same situation. Um, but anyway, to your question about the draft this year, there will be probably some um, you know, taking advantage of the situation in the sense that if you did a lot of your work, your scouting work last summer and fall, you're going to have a lot more information than clubs that maybe just didn't do a lot of that. Clubs vary in how much they scout the summer and fall because there's always the assumption we're going to see everybody in the spring anyway. How much do we want to crush the summer? You don't want to make decisions off the summer. You don't want to get fooled by a summer look. Well, guess what? That's all we got on a lot of guys. Many, many high school guys. Actually, a lot of the college guys had been sort of lightly scouted this spring. We only played a couple weeks, not conference, non-conference games, you know, avoiding players who were playing mostly in cold weather. We're we're, we don't have much info on this spring at all. And so it would not surprise me at all. Uh, my, I have, I've had two predictions, at least right now, on the draft that we don't even necessarily know when it's going to be. But one I've said many places, it's going to be a super college-heavy draft. It was already a, a strong college draft anyway. Now it is going to be more so because teams, I think, are just going to flee to the safety of college players where they have four years of, of uh, both scouting looks and of data to work from. Um, and uh, my sort of second prediction is that although it may seem to go kind of pretty chalk on draft day, would not surprise me at all to see pretty wide uh, variances in in terms of outcomes from this draft. It would not surprise me at all to see, say that we just do a five-round draft, which is really a bad idea, but that's, you know, it's a possibility, right? Nothing's been decided. They could still say 10 rounds or 12 rounds or whatever, but it's a five-round draft. There's going to be some major league stars who are undrafted this year. I will, I would put a lot of money on that because we just don't have the information we typically have. Even in a good draft, in a regular draft, Paul Goldschmidt was an eighth round pick. He's okay. Like Paul Goldschmidt in this year's draft certainly isn't going to jump up into the top five rounds. He didn't get any, even get to the top five rounds in his own draft when he had a full spring to play and had a good spring. So I think teams are going to end up whiffing on a lot of guys because they just haven't seen them. Uh, and those guys will end up, you know, my hope is that those guys end up signing as free agents either shortly after the draft or they get to go play an independent ball or some kind of, you know, maybe there's an independent fall league coming. Whenever we're allowed to go out and have games again, those guys need to go out and play potentially uh, because I think there's going to be a lot of talent out there and that teams should be well aware. They're going to miss some guys because they can get to scout them in the spring and be ready afterwards to pounce when those guys go out and show that they should have been drafted in the first place. Uh, Keith, we just mentioned Dan Kantrovitz. Uh, I'm curious, uh, year one of a new scouting director, year one of a new player development philosophy, what, how critical are is that first year? Kantrovitz, I assume, is 
you know, he hasn't brought in a lot of new scouts, but I assume year one was his uh, opportunity to kind of evaluate his staff and possibly bring in people for various roles starting next offseason. Craig Breslow and Justin Stone are kind of brought in a bunch of new coaches and new philosophies and new ways to really uh, develop these uh these talented uh, minor leaguers that they have in the system and kind of extract the maximum talent uh, that they have in uh, with them. How, how important is year one of establishing all of that stuff for both Cantervitz, Breslow and Stone, all those people like what, what are we missing out on? What are the Cubs missing out on from this first year? Um, honestly, I would say it's not, it's no more important than any other year. Um, I really? think that, yeah, I really don't, I don't think that, um, uh, yeah, he's going to probably bring in some of his own guys at some point. I would expect that. That's pretty typical. Um, but it's not like he is, it actually was probably different when Matt Dory was first hired because he went from a regional cross-checking job, I believe, right up to being a scouting director. Uh, Dan has worked at, in senior positions in front offices for multiple clubs now. So this is kind of not new for him. It's not like he's just trying to figure out you know, if you if you jump from a job where you're not really running a staff to suddenly you're a scouting director, you've got 15 people working underneath you and you've got to coordinate all kinds of information. You're seeing different players. You're probably seeing fewer players because you're focusing more on the top few players. It's a pretty different mindset. Um, and, you know, it's sort of a higher cognitive load, but it's also with different stuff than what you were typically thinking about before. I, I think for Kantrovitz, it's going to be I'm not saying he's going to have a good draft, bad draft, or anything else. I'm just saying, like, I think he's pretty well, uh, like, suitably experienced for that job that he can just step in and start going right away. And and that there's not going to be a big, um, I'm not expecting sort of a transition period or any kind of ramp up for him versus what I might say that about, you know, if you hired somebody who was a little bit younger or greener, where it's not necessarily a bad choice, but you expect a different process as he gets acclimated to the job. Yeah. That was so good. like someone was like some... uh, Shane, someone like, sorry, someone like Shane Farrell in Toronto, maybe having a more difficult time than Dan, who's, who's been at the top uh, for multiple organizations. OK, that's that's interesting to think about. Yeah, I sorry. I just I, I mean, it's all good stuff, but I was just like um, I kind of lost myself for a moment, just like listening to Keith's answer on that, because it was like kind of felt for a moment like I was listening to a podcast and I was like oh this is a like this is an interesting way of thinking about this because I mean in part you know I'll throw Sahadev under the bus I mean like you he had raised this question before when we've spoken and and it kind of it did um at a superficial level uh it did strike a chord I'm like oh yeah that is kind of tricky uh so you know I, I felt very like a nice warm blanket there as, as Keith explained that uh <laughs> Perhaps Sahadev's just an idiot, and it's not a big concern uh, this year. Uh, just kidding. We've buddy. known that for a while. So uh, we, you know, we got to leave. We got to leave on that high note. I mean, you're not. This is the George Costanza. We're not going to get better than that. So, uh, look, just wanted to say again, Keith, thank you so much for taking the time with us. Um, it's it's a pleasure to, uh, in, especially in the environment we're in right now, to take a moment to kind of talk about baseball and, and do our thing. And I know that the listeners will appreciate it too. So again, thank you so much for, for taking this time with us. My pleasure. So uh, thank you folks for listening. Hope you enjoyed. Uh, make sure you are checking out Keith's work at The Athletic. Follow him on Twitter. He's fantastic on a number of fronts. 
And thank you for listening. Again, this is uh, Ant Waveland, Cubs podcast here at The Athletic. Subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. And uh, we'll be back at you later this week. Uh, thank you so much for listening and take care. Thank <laughs> you.